Back in the 1930s, the United States was going through a Great Depression, and not just the United States, but the world. And in this, a little boy was born to a family, and that family did not know God. And that family uh, was led by a person that uh, was not the greatest example, we'll, we'll say that for now and did not lead his families in ways of righteousness. Also, during that same time, a young girl was born. And she was born to a family that had been Christ followers and lovers of God for multiple generations. They grew up separately, not knowing each other. These families didn't know each other. And they survived the Great Depression... And then in their teenage years, the war that was to end all wars broke out. And our nation and this world saw the loss of millions and millions of people that were killed and slaughtered, tortured all over this world. And that's what they read in the newspapers. That's what they listened to on the radio. And... Maybe they would see a news clip at the movie theater if they got to go to the movie house to watch a movie. There'd be a news clip at the beginning of those movies that would give some of the affairs of the world, and that was their experience growing up. Later in life, in the later part of their teenage years, they met through a mutual friend, and they fell in love, and they became married. And over the process of years, they had some children. They had a number of miscarriages during those years as well. And the man that was leading this family was not a Christian. He was not a Christ follower. I suppose that he believed in God. There was a common theme, I guess, that most, of, most Americans believed in God. But that doesn't necessarily mean they followed God. One of, uh, over, over the process of time, by watching the, the chase and godly wife that he had married in 1966, he believed and obeyed the gospel and became a babe in Christ. I was born to that family in 1960. I was the third of three uh, boys that survived. Again, there were a number of miscarriages in there as well. And this is the story of my family, or how I came about. They were raised in separate environments, and those environments nurtured them. They provided the, the things that would mold their personalities one way or another, good and bad, both of them. My mother did not have perfect, family, perfect parents, even though they were God-fearing and Christ-following. My, my grandfather, my dad's father, was not a nice man. He was a mean man. He was mean-spirited. His wife, my grandmother, was a lovely woman. Not a Christ follower, but a, but a good woman. And so my parents came together, fell in love, and in that process I was conceived. And my parents, both of them, bring into that union and into that family experiences, genetic issues that I inherit. 
I am genetically created in the image of my parents. So part of my DNA comes from my mom, part of my DNA comes from my dad. And those that knew my parents can tell you at certain moments, Kathy can, for sure, that's like your dad, that's like your mom, those sorts of things. Genetic, nature, environment, nurture. Yes, <laughs> there's that great debate. So each one of us have that story. And each one of us have an image. And as we look at that image that we're created in, we reflect certain aspects of those with whom we have received the genetic and the nurturing aspects of our life. Now, as we grow, other influences come into to play and so forth. So, in whose image are you? Is the question that we want to explore this morning. And no doubt, there are aspects of your parents in there. But we want to look at the spiritual side of this question that was posed to... Uh, to Jesus, or that Jesus brought up, and we want to explore this a little bit. This was a point in time where the, some of the Pharisees and the Herodians came to, to test Jesus, to tempt Jesus, and they asked the question, is it lawful to pay tribute or taxes to Caesar? The Herodians and also the Pharisees, maybe to a little bit lesser degree, but they were very strong nationalists. They wanted an independent Israel and so forth. And, and who could blame them for that, having suffered at the hands of, of uh, Rome and of the Caesars? So Jesus asked them for a penny, and they brought it. And he said unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? And they said unto him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. This is a, a coin that would, could have been circulated during this time. Don't know that this was the penny or the, the coin, but this is a, a coin that is, has the superscription of Caesar Augustus. And presumably that is his image that was stamped on this piece of metal to create a coin, not unlike the coins that you and I have. Probably not as crisp in its uh, creation, but nonetheless bore the image and the superscription of Caesar's. And so Jesus answered them, well, you, because of this, you need to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And we sometimes will jump to this verse, you know, to calm ourselves down when we get pulled over by a police officer, and we say, well, he's a representative of Caesar or of the government in that, in that sense, and and so I need to render my, my obedience and my submission to this representative or April 15th is coming up pretty soon and we're going to be paying off our taxes or maybe getting a little refund back. But at the end of the day, the government's keeping a portion of your money. And so we need to render. So we go to that. But what I want to explore a little bit more is, and to God, the things that are God's. Because I think there's more to this than him just saying, yes, pay your taxes. I think there's a deeper message here that we need to, to explore. So let's do that. In Genesis 1, 26, the first part of 26, and then jump to 27, God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. 
So God created man in His own image. In the image of God created He Him. Male and female created He them. So in a sense, my mom and dad, when they came together and I was conceived, created a, a, a new life. God created mankind. He spoke the world into existence. Nine times in Genesis it says, and God said. And whatever it was that He said came into existence. And it was good. It was very good. And man was in that. But He says, let's do something different with man. Let's make man in our image. In our likeness. And so He created us that way. And as we look at men and women today, certain characteristics of God are highlighted in men that aren't necessarily highlighted, not saying that women don't have them, but they're not, uh, they're not highlighted in women as they are in men. And conversely, is true as well. There are certain characteristics of God that are highlighted in women, not saying that men don't also have some of these things, but they're not highlighted in men, but they are in women. And so when man and woman comes together and they become one, we see a fuller, a more complete picture of God when that happens. And there's nothing more beautiful than a beautiful marriage and a loving husband and wife becoming one. It's a struggle. It's a challenge. It's a difficult. And, and you're in it for the long haul. And you need to be stubborn about that, that you are, you are there. And, I, and there are times in our marriage that no doubt the stubbornness of Kathy has kept this marriage uh, this marriage going. Well, we've brought enough stubbornness from both sides of our, our family. But we've, we've made it work. And it's, it's not always a pretty picture, you know. I mean, out in public it looks great. But sometimes in the privacy of our homes, it's not always so pretty. But the love that we have for one another brings us together. And when that is together in the proper way, you see a beautiful picture of God because you see that in His creation. That is also true in all of God's creation. All of the creation reveals elements of God so that there are without excuse that say there is no God because the proof is ample around them in the, in the creation. So we've been created in the image of God. But then something happened. Isaiah says, 59 verse 2, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God and your sins have hid His face from you that He will not hear. God is righteous and holy to an extent that it is difficult for us to express and understand. Pureness, completeness, all-powerful, all-present, all-knowledge, all-everything is God. He cannot have anything to do with sin. So sin separates us from God. And there's a gap between us, a bridge that is further than you and I by our own actions can ever build or ever cross. Ezekiel said, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, because you have made your iniquity to be remembered in that your transgressions are discovered, so that in all your doings your sins do appear. It's like he's saying, you're not even a bad, you, you don't even uh, uh, blush, you don't even, you're not even embarrassed about your sins, and because you, you don't even worry about trying to keep them hid, they're seen in everything you do. 
And so what is a righteous, holy God going to do? He's going to separate Himself from that sin. And that is the story of mankind. We're created in His image. There is something distinct and spectacular about every one of us that is distinct from all the other creation. We have a soul. God breathed into our nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. There is something different about us. We've been given dominion over all of the God's creation. There's something different about us. But that doesn't mean He can have anything to do with our sinful behavior and sinful nature. So while created in His image, we have the DNA, we have the, the spark that is different from all of other creation. Nurture comes into play as well. And our response, because of the free will that God has given us to that nurture, to that environment, we chose sin. We choose sin so often over doing what is right. So what can we do about it? We're going to camp on this first. So if you want to turn and open your, your Bibles, or we're going to sit on it for just, just a minute or two. What can we do? Well, James gives us some, uh, some information here. He says, draw nigh to God and He will draw nigh to you. God is not going to come and have relationship with someone that is in sin. He's not going to do that. But if we make a move towards Him, He will make a move towards us. And then He goes on and tells us how we can do that. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Let's stop there for a moment. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. I'm going to convey some steps that I went through that I think that is what these two verses are talking about. In my later teenage years, you would not have wanted to have a relationship with me as I really was. I knew some of you at that time, but I was trying to live one life in one world and another life in another world. But who I really was at that time in my life was that other world. It was a sinful world. I let sin dominate and control uh, my life. But through the, the, the love of a, a godly woman in the name of Kathy, over the process of that time and her turning to Christ and uh, her trying to live a, a, a righteous life began to influence me and I began the process of making, making changes. And it, it took a number of years for these things to, to happen. But the easiest part was to stop physically doing something. And I think that's where it's cleanse your hands, you sinners. Just stop sinning. Stop doing those things that are contrary to God's will. But what was harder was purifying the heart. Because the lust, the sinful nature, the desires of the mind and the heart dwelled on those things that were sinful. And because my heart was not purified at that time, it was easy to, to slip up and to slip in and to go back to negative behaviors, even if just for a little bit, and then come back. And I'm thankful for the encouragement I had 
from her and from some others in this room as well to come back and to have an environment where I could come back. And that's part of why it's such an important part of our congregation here to provide a refuge for the soul because as big a group as we are, I know there are people in this room right now who on occasion slip. And you need a place to go back and find refuge and get retooled and rededicated and refocused, rejuvenated, and go back at it again. But the challenge for, for me, and I think is true for others, it's the purifying the heart part. So it took more and more time to wear those negative things in, in my mind and in my head and in my heart began to get lesser and lesser of an influence in my life. And I think that's what he's saying here. There is a process that we go through. First of all, you just got to stop. You need to stop the behavior. Different words need to come out of your mouth. You may think them, but they got to stop coming out of your mouth. Then you change your heart and you purify your heart and you don't think them anymore. And so in this, he, he, he continues, be afflicted and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. James is not saying that the Christian life is all about walking around with a frown on your face and you're unhappy. That's not what he's saying at all here. At this point, he's talking about your sinful nature. You, you be afflicted and mourn and weep. You recognize who it is and what your sin has done. You see Christ on the cross. You see the scourging and the, and the crucifixion and the mocking and all of those sort of things that were the payment for your sins and the payment for my sins. We see those. And as a result of that, we mourn and we weep and we are afflicted because of that. We don't let the laughter associated with our sin or the joy that is for a moment in the engagement of that sin, we don't let that be our... Rather, we turn that to heaviness. We grieve and mourn that our sins did what they did to our Savior Jesus Christ. And as we do that, we will humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, and it is He who will pick you up. He will do that. He'll assist you in that through your brothers and sisters in Christ who will cry with you, who will pray with you, who will hold you, who will answer the phone when you call and when you're tempted, will respond to you in positive ways. In a church that provides a refuge, all of those things come in play and God through all of that will lift you up and He'll lift your head and He will wipe the tears of your sorrow and your regret and your repentance and set you back in place in the body, having forgiven you. And what a wonderful feeling that is. When we carry a sin burden over the process of time, it weighs us down, it, it, it agonizes us in ways that we may not even be fully aware of until we repent of it. And then we go, wow, that burden is gone. What a wonderful feeling that is. And a relief and a release it is to us. So now let's look at some attributes. If we're created in His image, what are the attributes of our Father in Heaven 
and His Son, Jesus Christ, communicated to us by the Holy Spirit, what are those things that we need to see in our life? In this verse, verse 23, it talks about the things that is our nature to glory in or to brag about, to be pleased about. And they are our wisdom, our power, and our riches. And what he says here, it says, but let him that glories, glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord which exercised love and kindness, judgment and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. So he has given us insight. First of all, he says, if you're going to glory in anything, glory that you know and understand me. Now, in this life, we're never going to fully know and understand every aspect of God. But He has revealed Himself to us through His creation and through His Son, Jesus Christ, and through the Holy Spirit that helps us adhere to those principles and connect dots of His Word and so forth. So we find in God someone that exercises loving kindness. Exercise, first of all, it's an ongoing, permanent phrase here that in every way He is merciful. That's what loving kindness is. Merciful. In every way He yields perfect judgment. And as He extends mercy and as He executes judgment, He is totally righteous. He will always do what is right. The God of heaven will always do what is right. And so we see though in mercy and judgment the opportunity for conflict. Because we can think of all the... We, we made reference to World War II earlier. And all the millions of people that were abused during that, that war and killed and property stolen and all the other things. If God is not just, does not issue judgment in that case, He's an unrighteous God. Because sin must be punished. But yet He's also merciful. He extends mercy to the sinner. So how does He do that? He does that in Christ at the cross. And you'll find in 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, the last three or four verses, and about the first five or six verses of the second chapter, the Apostle Paul ties this verse into the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And so at the cross... Mercy, judgment, and righteousness all come together. So how does this play for you and I? Because we are not omnipotent. We're not preeminent. We do not have all knowledge. So how do we adopt this principle that if He is this way and these are the things that He delights in, there must be an expectation on His part that we have these same characteristics. When we can't be perfect, what do we do? And I offer this just as a, my opinion. We lean to mercy. Since we can't possibly know every nuance of the judgment that needs to be made, our court system, in the punishment phase, they're determined to be guilty, and then there's a punishment phase. And in that punishment phase, they consider mitigating circumstances... What was the family they were born into? What is his IQ? Uh, 
what were her experiences growing up? Those are all mitigating circumstances. What were aggravating circumstances? And so they, they try to mix those, all of those together to come about with a proper punishment. But they are, you know, they are imperfect people making this. And so you and I cannot possibly know all the mitigating circumstances. We cannot possibly know all the aggravating circumstances. God alone does, and God alone will make exactly the right judgment. So in short of that then, what do we do? We extend mercy. Because that's what it looks like is the leaning of God and how He's able to do that because He is able to do it through the substitution of Christ on the cross. Christ's sins were punished. Or not Christ's sins were punished. Christ was punished for our sins. Our sins were put on Christ and punished in Christ. So our sins are going to be punished one way or the other. They're going to be punished in Christ or they're going to be punished by you. One or the other. Because God is righteous and He will do what's right. If your sins can be put on Christ and placed on Christ and He claims you, then His, His punishment, or the punishment that He received on the cross is that justification for you. Philippians 4 and 8, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of a good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. So we are given uh, by the inspiration of the Apostle Paul to to the Philippian brethren that these are the kinds of things that we need to be thinking on. These are the kinds of things that are characteristics of God. And so we need to begin incorporating these things in our life. And we continue, 2 Peter 1, 5-7, And beside this, given all diligence, add to your faith virtue. And to virtue there is moral excellence. And to virtue, knowledge. And to knowledge, temperance. And temperance, patience. Patience, godliness. Godliness, brotherly kindness. Brotherly kindness, charity. So you see a process. You see a growth. You see things being added to your life over the process of time. As you begin as to wash your hands or to cleanse your hands, you sinners, and to purify your hearts, you are replacing things with these kinds of issues, these kinds of characteristics. We continue, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. So the fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit being in you, which was given unto you when you obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you participated in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ the Son of God, when you did that, you received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the fruit of that Holy Spirit in your life are these things. So, we could have added 30, 40, 60 other verses, but it would belabor the point. The point is there are characteristics of God our Father His Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit that are to be incorporated into our life. And as we look at the Word of God and we begin to read it, because it is a, this book is alive. It's not just a paper and ink that's on a, on a shelf somewhere. This book, God's Holy Word, is alive. And if you read it, it will read you. If you search it, It's going to search you. If you open it up and want to look into the mirror of its Word, it's going to reflect perfectly what you look like spiritually. Every area where you don't look like Christ will be magnified. 
The areas that you do look like Christ will be confirmed and complimented. And so in order to do this, we've got to open this. We've got to read it. We've got to study it. We've got to learn and understand that God is the God that exercises love, loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness, and so forth. You're not going to get it through osmosis. You've got to put some work in. You've got to do some reading. You've got to do some studying. You've got to do some meditating. You've got to put into practice what you read. Put into practice what you hear. Celebrate these things. Incorporate them in, into your lives, and they will make you into a different person. My father was a much different person after he came to Christ than he was before. In the environment that he was raised, he was, a, he was of, his gener, of his side of the family, a first-generation Christian. And I was six years old when he obeyed the gospel. My oldest brother would have been 16, 15 to 16. And so most of my older brother's life was raised with a man that was not a Christian. Now, he wasn't a bad man. He was a good man by those good man standards, but he wasn't a, a Christ follower. He didn't lead his family spiritually. He didn't know much about, about the Bible. But in his, in his later years, he was an humble, loving, graceful, merciful man who overcame the obstacles that his nurturing gave him and took a much bigger step than I ever thought of taking in my life. And so as we look at these things, we want to see as we look into the mirror of our life. And maybe you need to stand in front of a real mirror and just look at yourself, but peer deeper than what you see reflected back at you. Look deep into your eyes, into your heart through your eyes. And what are those things that you are doing that don't reflect God in your life? And stop it. Just stop it. Then begin the process of purifying your heart as you add these things to, to your life. And in the process of doing this, God has made a promise to us. He says, For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. What God has promised you is that if you will cleanse your hands and you will purify your hearts and begin the process in a positive way of incorporating these characteristics of God into your life. You're not going to do it perfectly. You're not going to do it overnight. Uh, it is a, lifetime, a lifelong challenge of being molded and conformed to the image of His dear Son. But this is a commitment to God to you, that if you'll do those things, you'll take those steps in a proactive way, and you'll draw nigh to God. He's going to draw nigh to you, and He's going to begin a process of, of conforming you into His image. And these characteristics that we, that we mentioned, I'm not sure I know how to go backwards. There we go. These kinds of things and other verses that we could have put up here that talk to the character of God, those things will begin being seen in you. You don't have to, you don't have to preach them. Just live them, and people will see them. They will see Christ in you. And they'll see a changed person or a changing person. I hope all of us are changing people because there's not a one of us that's perfect. None of us have attained where we need to be. And, but we've got to keep trying. When we, when we slip, 
when we fall, we pick ourselves back up, we draw nigh to God, we confess our sin, we repent of that, which means we're going to turn around, we're going to change, we're not going to do that anymore, and we're going to draw close. We're going to come to the place of refuge, whether that's over the phone with a brother and sister in Christ or coming together in an assembly like this and fellowship afterwards, and I'm going to absorb the goodness of those that are around me that love Jesus Christ, and I'm going to use that to draw on strength, and I'm going to be nurtured by what I participated in in that worship service and by the conversations I had after services. And all of those things are going to strengthen and embolden me to get back in the fight and to, to, to move towards God even closer and more diligently day by day. And then we'll be conformed. Ultimately, when we either... We're in the grave and we're resurrected. We're going to meet Jesus in the air and we're going to be, con- we're going to be converted into a, a new body and it's going to be a glorious body and it's going to be, we're going to be more like Jesus than we could possibly be like Him here. Uh, we're not going to be gods. We're not going to become God, but we're, we're go- we are created in His image. And when we come forth, that is going to be a glorious, wonderful uh, existence that we will have for eternity in heaven. And then we find that the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. What's in a name? A name is a, is a powerful thing. It's a wonderful thing. What does it mean to you to carry the name of Christ? Because every one of us that have believed and obeyed the gospel carry the name of Christ. It may not be written on our birth certificate. We may not see it on our driver's license but hopefully people will see it in our life that we reflect Jesus Christ and we carry His name to the good and to the bad, meaning that we can be a negative influence carrying His name. What is your influence in that? April 13, 1979, Kathy said, I do, and she took my name. She took the Lowry name, and that was such a a heartwarming, special, wonderful moment when she did that. She was saying, I want to be identified with you for the rest of my life. And I'm identified to her because of her name as well. And so together we're identified. And then a few years ago, through the adoption of Thomas, he voluntarily took my name our family name. What a gift. What a wonderful expression of love and, and the, the humbleness I feel and appreciation that I feel that someone would take my name. I think God feels the same way. I think Christ feels the same way. When we acknowledge Him and we take on His name, there is a special love, a special bond, a special connection there are certainly privileges to carry in His name that others don't have. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 will explain some of that. You know, that when we're tempted, there's always going to be a, a way of escape. That's not guaranteed to those that aren't believers, but it is to you as a believer in Jesus Christ. That no matter what the temptation, first of all, you're never going to be tempted in a way that's different or strange or that you can't overcome. That's a promise from God. And then secondly, He will always make a way of escape for you to be able to endure it and to to escape. We don't always take that path, but it's there. And that's a promise that He's given us when we take His name. So, in whose image are you? 
Certainly we carry the genetics and the environment of the families that, that we were born to and we take those experiences and, and we join them with the experiences of a spouse and together in an imperfect way we begin to nurture and provide for our, for our children. But there is a, that, is a, that is a model, if you will, of the transition that should occur as a young person becomes an adult. And that we then take all of that and we begin the process of being conformed into the image of his dear son, not the image of my father, Bill Lowry, or my mother, Margie Lowry, not into their image anymore, even though they certainly have an influence. And it certainly comes out from time to time, good and bad. But that what comes out from now on is the image of Christ. To Christ be the glory, all glory and honor belong to Him who is the fullness of God.